It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Can you guys believe that we're at episode 22? Uh, And I'm just about ready. I know I keep sort of saying this, that I'm just about ready to start pushing a fast forward button and we're going to start going through World War I a little faster than we have. Uh, And however, that is not to say that I haven't been thoroughly enjoying taking my time sort of navigating through this, but uh, in a 14-week training season, which is my allotment for time uh, to go through World War I, Uh, I realized that now that I'm over halfway, I better start moving. A four-year war, and I've gone a month and a half uh, into World War I. So, but it is, so much of World War I is defined by that first month to a month and a half. And that's why I've spent so much time there. And what we're headed into is sort of in my title right now. And it is stalemate. Now, I could have said The Dreadful Stalemate, which I did have as a title for a little bit. Uh, The Horrific Stalemate. The Deadly uh, Stalemate. I could have done that, but then I might scare off people from actually listening to the message. Because I don't want to overplay the blood and gore of World War I. And if you've noticed, you know, in the first 21 episodes, I haven't focused on the blood I've focused on the men and the decisions and the life because that's what we can relate to as believers. To focus on the death, which has been extreme up to this point, which is funny because you could go through World War I with Eric Ludi and say, so has anyone died yet? Yes, yes. Uh, Well over a million people, uh, soldiers died in the first month. If you can just imagine that. And now, Uh, That isn't the focus I want to have. At the same time, it's an important meditation that when you head in the wrong direction in life, it does lead to destruction. There is a way to destruction. And what we see in World War I is that way opened up, and it is gobbling up lives. And an entire generation of young men is going to be destroyed in and through this debacle known as the Great War or World War I. So this is part 22, and I I almost purposely, instead of calling it the stalemate, which is my tendency, right, is to put a the in front of it, just to sort of throw a curveball at you guys, you know, since I'm getting too predictable. So just to call it stalemate, this is for you guys, it's a gift. Barbara Tuckman says it this way, now I've actually read this quote before, and usually I don't just keep repeating the same quote, but it's, she's talking about a zone of time in the war, and so that's, and she just says it so well. After the incomplete victory of the Marne, there followed the German retreat to the Aisne, the race to the sea for possession of the channel ports, the fall of Antwerp and the Battle of Ypres, where officers and men of the BEF held their ground, fought literally until they died, and stopped the Germans in Flanders. Not Mons or the Marne, but Ypres was the real monument to British valor, as well as the grave of four-fifths of the original BEF. So... We have experienced the Marne. In fact, I spend an undue amount of time on the Marne, setting up the Battle of the Marne, going through the Battle of the Marne, and then you see the Germans retreat. The Germans looked like they had victory in hand, and yet it's going to be snuffed out in such an extraordinary and what many people would call miraculous way, and they're going to go into a retreat. They're going to go beyond the River Ain, and they're going to go to that plateau. I think you guys remember the name of that plateau, Chemin de Dames. Shaman de Dom. 
And uh, that's where they're going to set up. And there's going to be a face-off called the Battle of the Ain, or the First Battle of the Ain. And this is where both sides, for the first time in the war, no one is going to be able to outmaneuver the other, and they're going to end up stuck, where they, they don't have enough strength to overpower the plateau, uh, if you're talking about the Allies, the, the, the French and the British, and the Germans don't have enough to come down and, and to scare the, the British and the French away. Well, this leads to a problem uh, this, that isn't in their military handbooks. It's like, what are we supposed to do with this? And this is where they both entrench. And it's the first time in history that you've ever seen this form of warfare begin to materialize, which is called entrenchment. And so what we mostly know World War I for is entrenchment, which is going to start right there. Now, these generals are trying to figure out what to do because they're looking through their military handbooks. They're like, I have no solution for what to do here. This isn't how we were trained. The French have only been trained to go on the offensive. They don't know how to be defensive in warfare. And so the first thing they begin to do is what they've always been classically trained to do, which is to try and take the flank. So to, if you're talking about the French and the English, to the right, it's already sort of uh, congested uh, with all sorts of battles. So they, both sides are going to realize at the same time that up towards the sea or the ocean, the British Channel, uh, the English Channel, there is a potential of a flanking maneuver. So both sides are going to start racing to the sea, and that's where the term the race to the sea is going to take place. Even though their goal isn't to get to the sea, it is that they're headed towards the sea, and they can't seem to get around each other and take the flank. And this is ultimately going to lead to both of them ending up at the British or at the uh, English Channel without having flanked the other, and now we have this long line that is developing. So I'll try and explain it here. So here's our map, Europe of 1914, uh, and you've seen this map almost every episode in, in the first 21. So if, you haven't, if this is your first time to join with me, uh, uh, welcome to our map. And so the middle uh, section, you're going to see the uh, reddish, purplish color. Those are the central powers. Germany is sort of the lead instrument in the central powers, and it's the top country there with the horse's head, and its mouth, I always uh, say, is neighing at Russia. And Russia, France, and the United Kingdom, the blue uh, countries, are, have allied together in what's called the Triple Entente. And as the war progresses, they're just going to be called the Allies. And even into World War II, they'll be called the Allies. But they, call, they start by being called the Triple Entente. Now, I'm going to zoom in here, and we're going to put Paris, France on the map. And Paris is a strategic location to start out this war because that's the target of the German army. The Germans are going to be the aggressors in World War I, and they're going to violate Belgian neutrality, and they're going to sweep through, and like a hammer, they're wanting to come down and, and take Paris in 39 days. It's called the Schlieffen Plan, and they've been dreaming up this plan for decades. And the plan was working until von Kluck turned his flank, and that's we've gone into that in great depth. And the French and the British, which look defeated, suddenly have this rare opportunity in history to strike the open flank of von Kluck, which they do, and that's called the Battle of the Marne, which then leads to all sorts of uh, changes of location. And that red star is the Battle of the Aisne, which is where we sort of finished uh, in the last... Uh, encounter. 
Now, uh, what's going to take place is that crab walk, as some have called it, that race to the sea where they're both trying to outflank each other and before they get uh, to the English Channel. And you're going to see, I put a, a, another line down. This is going to become what we know as the Western Front. You're getting entrenchments all along. Neither side can seem to break through, which is creating a very hard line along this, uh, this even though my line is very imperfect. Now, I'm going to make a green circle up near the top, and it's, it's of a little of Belgium and a little of northern France. And that zone is going to become very, very significant in the Western Front. It is sort of the historic zone where most of the great battles of World War I that we are familiar with are going to take place. And so I'm going to zoom in on that with sort of a different map. Doesn't it feel good just to see a different map uh, for once on the screen? And I really liked this map. It's just sort of fascinating. Uh, it's a map, I think, that was from like New Zealand, and I was just intrigued by it. And so what you see is the Kingdom of Belgium there is that orangish uh, color. And then we have France right below it. And I'm going to put that same green circle, the equivalent of what I had on the, uh, the other one. This is the zone. And you'll see across the, the English Channel, uh, you're going to see the United Kingdom over there. And so that gives you at least some perspective. But right in the middle of that circle is a town called Ypres. And so if you have really good eyesight, you can see it uh, there. But I am going to uh, show you that same line, the Western Front line, and sort of how it's going to form. Now, that's a very imperfect line. It wasn't just a straight line. It, it jagged all over the place. There's all sorts of uh, physical, uh, geographical impediments that are going to uh, be in there. But in a general sense, that's sort of how it flows. Now I'm going to make a smaller circle, and this smaller circle right there that I just put inside the bigger circle is what I'm going to term the Fields of Flanders, okay? This, uh, some people call it the Flanders Field. That's where most of the uh, great battles of World War I are going to be fought, is in that little circle, which is actually in Belgium, which is interesting. So it's like northern France, uh, southwestern uh, Belgium. And that little territory, I can't tell you how many millions of people died. Well, I can, but uh, in other words, it's sort of shocking uh, how much disaster is going to take place in that little zone of territory. Now I have another green circle, even smaller than that, that is going to surround Ypres. And this little Ypres territory, just that little circle, uh, is quite the storyline uh, in world history. So uh, this is Barbara Tuckman. She says, not Mons or the Marne, but Ypres was the real monument to British valor, valor as well as the grave of four-fifths of the original BEF. So at the start of World War I, the British expeditionary force, known as the BEF, is going to have 70,000 men that come over to uh, the European continent, and they're going to first stand off in Mons. And then they're also going to be a part of the Marne, and they're going to be broken down, and they're going to be, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be less and less of them after each of these battles. But then four-fifths of them are going to die in this little green circle that I, I just showed you, which is, that's the entire fighting army for the British. Now, the British have all sorts of dominions and commonwealth nations that are beginning to send over troops. In other words, India and Canada. Canada is going to bring 30,000 soldiers across the Atlantic, which is the largest transfer of, 
uh, of soldiers in, in a trans-Atlantic uh, trans, uh, in history, right? So it's a huge event. However, at this time, this, these old contemptibles, which is what they were called, are basically almost no more. And that's all going to happen at the Battle of Ypres, which is where we're at now. So the Battle of Ypres, uh, October 19th through November 30th. So this is an unusually long uh, battle at, at this time in history. Now there's going to be battles in the very near future that are going to be far longer than this. But this is, we're, we're moving from movement warfare, which is the classic warfare, you know, with the, you know, the drummer and the fife, and you, know, you go out and, you know, you, you hit the enemy, and then you retreat back and sort of lick your wounds, wounds and camp for the night and have a fire and sing songs around the fire, and then go out the next morning and do it again. That's historic warfare. This is not historic warfare. This is a reinvention of warfare, and it's going to be called trench warfare. And so it's going to lengthen battles to startling uh, amounts of time where the generals are literally experimenting on how to somehow break through these barriers. And yet as the entrenched party is sitting there, they become smarter and smarter of how to protect their trench. So they create breastworks. They then stick up barbed wire. It's like, huh, that'll stop them. Well, then both sides stick up barbed wire, and then both sides are like, that'll stop them. Now you have two, uh, two fences of barbed wire out there and this gap in between, which is going to become known as no man's land. And this is going to become the whole Western Front. This is, it's a barricade. It is... Uh, and these trenches are not going to be three feet deep anymore. Now they're going to be seven feet deep. And in fact, the Germans are going to establish entire, uh, like, fortresses underneath the earth. And they're going to actually put in, you know, going to decorate them. You know, they're, they're going to set up shop for a long period of time. So I'm going to change the name of the Battle of Ypres to something different. You see it on the screen if you're present. It's the first battle of Ypres. That says something, doesn't it? In other words, this isn't the first battle you're going to have here, and that's going to become very, very common in World War I. It's sort of frustrating for those of us that learn the name of a battle. It's just like, well, is this the first? Is this the second or the third battle of Ypres that we're talking about? And each one is very distinct, but it's the same territory. You know how many people are going to die and then be buried in that territory and then die and be buried over those people that were buried in that territory? I mean, you could just, people could smell this territory from a mile away as they're approaching. As the new soldiers are coming in, they're like, oh, it's just disgusting. And the smell of death lingers in the air. It's not just human, it's horse carcass. You know, it's just like, this is, this is misery at the highest levels. So the first battle of Ypres, I'm going to call it the crisis of inscrutability. I just wanted to introduce a, a fun word to you, inscrutable or inscrutability. So inscrutability, impossible to comprehend, understand, interpret, or make heads or tails of. It's like, what are they doing? Why are they doing this? Have you ever had it in your life where there's a battle that you continue to fight and someone from the outside is looking in going, why do you continue to bang your head against that wall as if that is doing anything? And that is precisely what the world is feeling in regards to this. The, the generals are like, we're going to break through. We're a stronger military unit. We, we, you know, we can outsmart these guys. And they keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. 
And so they send out 100,000 more troops, you know, trying to cross through no man's land who get then shot down with machine gun fire and then they do it again. And they lose another 100,000 and then they send them out again. It's a crisis of inscrutability. It's like, I understand, you know, the, the, the generals have a job to do and that's to win this war, but they don't know how to. They don't know how to break the stalemate. So the Germans are going to call the first battle of Ypres, see if I can say this and sound German, Der Kindermord. How was that? Did that sound German? I, I figure if I add some like <laughs> sound to it, uh, sort of like when I do my French, if I go, <laughs> that sounds French, but if I go, <laughs> and maybe some spittle, uh, it sounds German. But I have someone who speaks German here that wasn't very impressed with my uh, Der Kindermord, which means the massacre of the innocents. And uh, that's what they're going to call the first battle of Ypres. There's a reason for that. This is a hard one for me because I've, I've tried to sort of preserve the, the uglier side of the war as we're going through this. I'm going to glaze over the top, just sort of surf over the top of some things that are very hard. And that's why I'm calling it the crisis of inscrutability. This is what the military is facing in this situation. So I, I told you that Helmuth von Moltke, the German sort of general, he's the guy that was over the military activity for the Germans, is going to be sacked. He's going to be uh, removed from position uh, mid-September because he had a meltdown. The meltdown of Moltke was, I think, my last uh, message. And he's going to be replaced by a guy named Eric von Falkenheim. And Eric von Falkenheim is going to not translate well in history. He is going to be sort of one of those butchers. There's quite a few generals uh, in World War I that are going to be looked at very disfavorably. Uh, he will be one of them. His entire idea is, okay, we can't win this uh, in the way that we thought we were, so let's win it in a different way. Let's bleed them white. It's called the battle of attrition. Let's just break them down. If they lose all their soldiers, uh, if they lose millions and millions of men, then eventually they'll give up. And that becomes the new logic, is the battle of attrition. Instead of just sort of, let's break through the line, hey, let's hit them on their flank and get them to, uh, to surrender. No, now let's just kill them all. And that's going to lead to a very dark, uh, uh, very dark happenings uh, in this little territory. So there's Eric von Falkenheim. And he's going to have an idea. You see, at this time, everything is desperate. And the Germans are hanging by a thread in this. And they recognize they have to turn the corner before they get to the English Channel. They have to somehow make this work. And so one of the key battles is going to be this first battle of Ypres. Because before they get to the sea, they need to somehow outflank the British and the French. But to do that, they need to throw everything in the kitchen sink into Ypres to see if they can somehow turn the corner before it's too late. And so they're gonna take all their new recruits, they're gonna get all these students that are 16, 17, and 18 years old that have no military experience, no military training, and they're going to rush them through their training. They're unprepared, they don't know exactly how to fight. Some of them don't even know how to shoot a gun. And they're going to send them in mass to Ypres. And they are going to face probably the greatest military at that time, and that's the remaining members of the BEF, the old contemptibles. They are, these are the best marksmen in the world, 
and these young kids are going to march upon them singing songs. I mean, they're just like about as happy as can be. They get to go off to war and they're going to be absolutely devastated. So In Flanders Fields is a famous poem that even on Remembrance Day they still read to this day, so we might as well read it. And it's written by a guy named John McCrae. In Flanders Fields the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place and in the sky the lark still bravely singing fly scarce heard amidst, amid the guns below. We are the dead, short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw, the torch be yours to hold it high, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep though poppies grow in Flanders fields. Flanders field, the famous battle zone. So this territory is going to have some of the most famous battles of history, uh, especially to the British and the French. This is what they are going to uh, memorialize. Even though it's just that little circle that I was showing you, there is so much that is going to happen there. So this is just going to give you an idea, okay? There's about 40 million dead in World War I. Sorry to give a spoiler alert on that, but that's it's quite the casualty uh, levels. But in the First Battle of Ypres, 300,000 casualties at the First Battle of Ypres. At the Second Battle of Ypres, 115,000 casualties. At the Third Battle of Ypres, also known as Passchendaele, if you've ever heard of that, it's probably one of the worst battles, if not the worst, in all of World War I, 850,000 casualties. And uh, just in the Third Battle, because casualties and dead are different. Casualties could mean just maimed and unable to continue fighting. But dead, I think we know what that means. Just in the Third Battle of Ypres, 600,000 dead. Uh, but in all of the battles of Ypres, 1.265 million casualties in that little circle that I showed you, and 800,000 dead. That is like so outrageous that it's almost impossible to swallow. In one little zone of that continent or that European landscape, is, uh, is that much activity and that much disaster. Dan Carlin, uh, from his podcast, uh, Blueprint for Armageddon, speaking of World War I, he says, at Ypres you begin to see the kinds of tragic levels this wasting of lives will reach. A large number of the troops that the Germans had called up who had very little training were young people, students, whose teachers had indoctrinated them into the idea of German honor and militarism. These young men would all join up together as students with their fraternity badges, and after very little training, they were thrown into this combat that was developing around the city of Ypres. Tragically, these students would run up against what was left of the old British professional army, one of the greatest military units in the world, which had been ground down ever since the war started, but still had some of its best units intact. These badly trained students, 16, 17, and 18-year-old kids, would be massacred for no good reason. So there's a book by Winston Groom called the Storm of, A Storm in Flanders, and he wrote this. On a front of nearly 20 miles, tens of thousands of men came to grips and did their best to murder each other in the cold, dank, misty hills surrounding Ypres. In many places, the fighting was hand-to-hand. -hand. That morning, divisions of the German Fourth Army, consisting in large part of students, attacked the British line, such as it was. In a fit of Wagnerian frenzy, that's from Richard Wagner, an opera, a guy who wrote music uh, and 
It was very emotional, in other words. In a fit of Wagnerian frenzy, or Wagnerian, I think if I'm going to say it correct, uh, the German students came on arm in arm, or waving their rifles in the air singing, and with their spiked picklehob helmets festooned with flowers. By the thousands they were shot down, even though they outnumbered the British at times six to one. That morning they faced the most professional elite regiments of the British Army, if not the world. When it was all over, the British official history estimated that at least half of these youthful, youthful Teutonic warriors, the Germans, a hundred thousand of them had been shot down. In uh, Herbert Solzbach, in his book with the German guns, says this. He's recording sort of the the Battle of Ypres. Change of position. We pull forward, get our first glimpse of this battlefield, and have to get used to the terrible scenes and impressions. Corpses, corpses, and more corpses. Rubble in the remains of a captured village, trenches hastily dug by the British are full of bodies. We get driven out of this position by infantry and artillery fire. We stand beside the guns with the horses. A dreadful night comes down upon us. We've seen too many horrible things all at once. They make a strong impression on us, barely 20 years old as we are. But these things also prepare us for what's going to come. You really feel for... I mean, Oftentimes we can look at war from a general's perspective and just the strategy, almost like it's a axes and allies board or a risk board. And those little uh, units on the board, red, blue, or yellow, or green, they symbolize people, but those people aren't real people. And what's hard is when you switch places and you get out of the general's head and into the young boy's heads and what they're going through in this. And there's such a romance of war up until this time. And I don't know when the romance ends, but I think we've reached that point where no longer is war romantic. When these young boys are headed off to war, they still have all the stories of their fathers and of their grandfathers before them. And war was something that was very different in history past, where men actually desired to go. Well, people would even prepare picnics and go watch it. This is not that sort of war. And so as a result, these, these young students that are signing up when they, when they hear that war is on and they can take on this terrible foe and they can save the world, and this will be the war to end all wars. We're going to finally deal with war once and for all. What they end up running into is very different than what they were promised. They're expecting to sit around a campfire at night and build relationship with a whole bunch of other boys their age, sing songs and you know, have this patriotic fervor. Instead, they're going to run into something very, very different. And it's disastrous. And I, I'm struggling to know, because I know a lot about World War I that I'm not saying. And I'm struggling to even know how to convey it because sometimes I think, eh, maybe it's not even helpful. Maybe it wouldn't help at all for any of us in here to know how truly hard it was. However, the reason I'm even sort of surfing along the, the surface of this is to recognize that when we allow the devil to bait us in his direction, and when we go in a direction other than the direction that God would call us, that we end up in something that I'm going to call a stalemate. This is the devil's territory. This is where he wants us. He wants us to spend our life in the fields of Flanders. That's where he is drawing us into. And anything that is done out of the flesh 
is what leads us into the fields of Flanders. Even the noble things, and, and for instance, war, this is a noble invitation for so many of these young men. However, it is false. What they are being brought into is not what they think they're going towards. And the same thing can happen for us. Even with religious fervor, we can end up in the fields of Flanders. When God desires us to actually fight a different war, and we find ourselves being ground down to dust in this trench in the field of Flanders. The art of fighting the right battles and not the wrong ones. So, a famous quote, uh, midway through World War II, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill uh, are together. There was other men from the United States and Great Britain in the discussion. And Franklin Roosevelt asked the question, gentlemen, what should we name this war? And Winston Churchill famously responds without hesitation, which is classic Winston Churchill. For whatever reason, he was very sharp and able to think a lot faster than Eric Ludy can. Even though my middle name's Winston, you think that would have rubbed off. But this is what he says, the unnecessary war. And when you study World War II, that is exactly the conclusion that you come to is this was totally unnecessary. It was unnecessary for us to destroy yet another generation, and yet most of the battles we fight can fall into that territory. There are very real battles that we must fight, but there are a whole bunch of unnecessary battles that we find ourselves engaged in that the devil is trying to draw us into. And that's part of what I want to sort of circle in our time together this morning is that I, as a Christian, want to engage in battle. I'm, I desire to have my weapons of warfare that are mighty to the tearing down of strongholds. And I want to be situated. I want to be fit. I want to be ready to engage the enemy, to submit to God and resist that devil, and to see captives set free. It's a noble desire that I have when I say that. However, even in my noble desire, there's so much bait. There's so many different things that can get us off track and that can cause us to fight in skirmishes that really aren't the center. Yesterday at the end of uh, the, the message, I brought up Mary and Martha, and that's always my sort of go-to story when it comes to being off track with right motives and right desires, but being off track. Martha, Martha, Jesus says. It's like she's, she's doing the right thing. She's being hospitable. She wants to take care of the roast and set the table just right, but there is something that she's supposed to be focused on that is even superior to that. And so the devil will always try and hijack our good motives. And in the church, one of the things that happens all the time is the enemy gets us focused on things that are not the center, that are not the priority, but are still true. And he loves to do this to us. And that's entire, the entire basis of denominationalism is a whole bunch of Christians that are focused on things that are true, but missing things that are more true. And as a result, we're not choosing the better part. We're actually playing the devil's game and we're entering into what I'm going to term stalemate territory or the fields of Flanders. And in the fields of Flanders, there is great destruction. 
How in the world could it be true in our generation that one of the most harmful places for many people has been the church of Jesus Christ? That doesn't make any sense. See, the church has been baited into the fields of Flanders to fight their battles instead of fighting their battles to truly win for the glory of Jesus Christ. We've entered into stalemate territory. And this happens on the global side with denominational disputes and doctrinal nuance where we are so fixated over being right and then over the fact that I need to rebuke my brother, I need to separate from my brother, and we take the very clear word of Scripture, misuse it and misapply it to justify our own flesh and self. And as a result, instead of recognizing that we are being moved oftentimes by pride and insecurities, we end up harming and entering into a field of Flanders where great destruction can follow in our wake. I, because of what we do here at Ellerslie, which is a desire to unite the body as opposed to disperse the body and, and divide from the body, because of that, I get a lot of behind-the-scenes stories of what happens in churches. So I, the guy that is talking right now knows a lot about modern Christianity and the devastation that has come to so many lives. There are a lot of Christians out there, well, maybe I should say it different. There's a lot of people out there that are no longer even Christians because of that devastation. And that greatly grieves my heart, this idea of stalemate or being wooed into a stalemate where it's like the race to the sea, where we're trying to outflank uh, the opponents the entire while. Meanwhile, we're being driven right into the fields of Flanders. It's like, do we recognize what the enemy is doing to us? But on the personal level, this is a very, very real thing. That there is a tendency in our life to want to live for Christ, which is a very, very good desire, but to live for Christ in such a way which is in our own strength instead of in God's strength. Now, for those of you that have been trained at Ellerslie, it's like, well, of course we would know not to do that, right? We know where the power comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit within. It doesn't come from our own uh, grit and determination, and, and yet we are susceptible to that bait, so Romans 9.32 is going to be talking about the Israelites, and it says this, Israel stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now, the fact that I just took that little portion of the scripture doesn't necessarily help you, but I wanted just to sort of have you see that. Israel is going to stumble over a stumble stone, uh, stumbling stone, the same one that we can stumble over, which is their own righteousness and their own good works, their own keeping of the law was sufficient, and that's what they're going to find as their bait. And it's a stumbling stone, and we can find the same stumbling stone. And it's like being driven into the fields of Flanders. It leads to destruction. And yet the whole while, it sounds really good. Why? I mean, if, are, Eric, are you saying that the law is bad? I mean, what, don't you esteem? I mean, don't, doesn't the Israelites, aren't they doing something good? They want to please God. They want to live righteously. I agree, it all looks good on the outside package. However, in so doing, they are missing their true solution, which is Jesus Christ. So these same Jews that are stumbling over the stumbling stone of trying to be righteous in their own strength are the ones that crucify the Messiah. 
And so actually they're going to bring about devastation and destruction by being wooed towards something right, but not something that truly saves. This is a stumbling stone that many of us can struggle with. And I, Eric Ludy, have had seasons of my life where this was the big issue for me. Where I am a very disciplined person, and I had this thought, you know, because doctrinally and theologically you can have it down saying, yes, I'm saved by Jesus Christ. But then in your practice, you can actually believe that it is somehow based on your goodness, that it is based on your hard work, that it is based on your discipline. And that bait leads you into the enemy's territory. Our salvation is not based on our goodness, on our hard work, and it is not based on our righteousness. It is based on Christ's good work. It is based on Christ's accomplishment. It is, great, it is based on Christ's perfection and his righteousness. And knowing that, see, intellectually, every one of us in here is like, yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm just saying, this is the stumbling stone. And when we get baited to fight the wrong battles, we end up in Flanders Fields, which is where there's absolute devastation. Even though you're desiring to do the right thing, almost every single soldier that went off to war in World War I was desiring to do the right thing. They had reasons why they were going, and they were high-minded reasons back then. Duty, honor, nationalism, you know, and some of them genuinely believed, for instance, the Hun, the Germans were baby killers and they were evil and they were, I mean, what they did in Belgium was just not wise. And as a result, they had a really bad reputation. And so when the British young soldiers, when the French young soldiers went to battle, they felt like they had a justified cause. When those students were going to battle, they were fighting for their homeland, they were fighting for their mothers and their brothers and sisters because they were being encircled by Russia and France and Great Britain had turned on them. And as a result, this was a protection for the ones they loved. Every single young person that was going had a good reason. And they were baited right into Flanders fields where they were destroyed. And so can we be destroyed, even though we have a high-minded ideal, we need to remember that the enemy wants to contort the truth. If he can't keep us from becoming a Christian, then he wants us to be a Christian fighting battles in Flanders Fields. He wants us to be fighting our battles in our own strength, in our own power, with wielding our own righteousness. And it is something that even though you can know that, you can still be caught red-handed doing it. Especially those of us that grew up in environments that leaned legalistic, we have a gravitational pull towards wanting to be right. So I, I really need to have my quiet time every morning. And, if, and you know, if you are asked why, it's like, well, to spend time with Christ. But if you ask why, why, you know, get to the deeper level, it's, well, it's because I want to be right with God. And I, I feel like, you know, I can't have a, I can't be right with God and be clothed in his righteousness if I also don't perform. And it's based on a part truth. If you want to cultivate a relationship with anyone, you need to be consistent and faithful. Yes. However, we have a tendency to deem it our righteousness unintentionally, and we get baited into Flanders Fields. Colossians 2, 21, and then verse 23. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. 
These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect to the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. What these soldiers are going to do is they're going to entrench, and then they're going to get out of their trench, and they're going to go over the top is what it's called, and they're going to try and get through the barbed wire and get shot down by machine gun fire. What they're doing is noble, but the effect is zippo. They're not actually accomplishing anything. And this is precisely what we have a tendency to do in our own spiritual life. We're wanting to not sin. We're wanting to be righteous and to be pure. But we're trying to do that and to manufacture such an outcome in our own strength. Instead of recognizing, God, I can't do this. He goes, I know. But God, you can do this. He goes, you're right. You see, the key is fighting the right battles God's way. That if you want to function in purity, you need the Holy Spirit being pure in and through you. If you want to be marked by his love, you don't try and whip up love. You submit to God and allow his presence to fill you and then he loves through you. And so most of us have a tendency to hang out in Colossians 2.21, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Because these things have an appearance of wisdom. It's a bait towards Flanders Fields. And yet they do nothing to actually break the stalemate in your life. You still are held in that trench and you can't seem to break through the German line. Sorry to make the Germans the bad guys. But you can't seem to get through it, no matter how hard you try. And God says, I have a better model. You want to break through the German line? First of all, we're not going to fight here. This is not where the battle takes place. You see, Jesus has actually already destroyed our enemy, and yet we're trying to fight him in our own strength. And so we need to elevate our battle to the level of the cross. This is where the battle is won, not in our work, but in his working. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And I could read that uh, with a fresh spin on the, on the present tense, too. Listen to this. It's not by works of righteousness, which we do, but according to his mercy that he saves us. You see, he is the one that must do the working. When we try and do the working, and this is a hard balance, because I mean, I, go, I know what, it, what goes on inside the human mind, when it's like, what am I supposed to do, sit, flop? I have to do something, you're right, you need to believe. Your job is to believe, your job is to trust him. However, you need to allow him, like I use that illustration of a glove and a hand. We are like the glove, he is the hand. And that glove, apart from the hand, can do nothing. But that glove with the hand, Wow, it can do all that that hand could do. And that's our secret as believers. But we oftentimes get baited into a stalemate. We get baited into the wrong battle, which leads to not just our destruction, but the destruction of others. There's nothing harder than to be around a legalist. That's not pleasant. To be in a legalistic church is one of the most oppressive things you could ever go through. And yet, you could stop at any point and push a pause button and take any individual life and pull, pull them out and say, Okay, let's examine this life. Do they desire truth? Yeah. Do they desire to be righteous? Yeah. In other words, it's not that they're evil. It's that they're fighting the wrong battle. You could take any of the soldiers in this. In fact, that's one of the greatest studies of World War I and World War II. Push a pause button, zoom in, lift a soldier up, and do an examination of him. Does this guy want to kill people? No. What, what is his motive for being here? 
Well, he actually genuinely believes he's doing that which is godly. He believes that this is a holy work that he is doing. He believes that he is serving God in being in that trench right now and rising up with his machine gun and shooting someone. And so it's an interesting test. When you look at this, you realize, huh, that's like us. That oftentimes we can be baited just like Martha to be laboring in the wrong field. We're laboring in Flanders' fields instead of in God's fields. And as a result, we're not producing fruit of righteousness. We're producing something very different that actually is not leading to life. Even though we mean well in our integrity-wise, we genuinely desire truth and life, but we're caught up in something that is propelling us into that stalemate war. Galatians 2.16, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. We could say by trench warfare, no flesh will be justified. No war will be won. This is a disaster. This trench warfare is going to go on for years and years and years. And one side will move forward 10 feet and break through and take 10 feet and then lose the 10 feet the next day. And then we'll just go through it again. The other side will go 10 feet one way. And I mean, it's, it's disastrous. And the amount of lives that it costs to get those 10 feet is uh, inscrutable. It doesn't make any sense, especially when you lose those 10 feet the next day. In other words, you're not gaining any ground. All you're doing is fighting out a battle that is not intended to win that way. And this is where you're going to see men like Winston Churchill who are going to question what we're doing in the Western Front and say, I think we need to try something different, guys. We're just banging our head against the wall. Is this really the best way to do things? And that's a good statement for every one of us that has spent time in a Christian life living out this desire to be pure, to be righteous, to be holy, to be perfect as he is perfect, to love as he loves, to be full of joy, to be full of peace, and yet we don't seem to have any of that. I'm not getting it in this trench warfare. How come this doesn't work? And God says, do you want something that does work? And that's the gospel. The key, the one thing that we focus on here at Ellerslie is basically how to get out of that trench and truly win. How do you break through this stalemate and actually win? And that is something that is not done in our human strength. It is something that is done in God's strength. And we gain access to it by faith. Now, that might sound like an oversimplification of it because we walk through a lot of different steps. One of the things we, we call reckoning the truth, which is what Paul is going to describe in Romans 6, is very critical. We need to recognize that he has done it and he has made that available to us and we need to take it. Advice from the major. So, Major Ian Thomas, I had an opportunity to meet him. So, Leslie and I and Annie Weshey, uh, this is quite a few years ago, it might have even been before Ellerslie started, uh, but we all went up to Estes Park and he had his little chalet up there and had the opportunity to sit with him and have tea. And uh, he's British and so I guess you know that's why we had tea. Uh, I'm not much of a tea guy, but hey, I'll, I'll have tea with the major any day. And so I... I was, you know, when you're in a situation like that and you're around a, a man of God who is sort of a stalwart pillar of the faith, and he's very old and very fragile and very frail. He was gonna, he actually passed away very soon after that. Uh, 
it's a little intimidating and you want to ask the right question so that he can give some brilliant answer that you can always remember for years to come. And so I was trying to figure out the whole time, you know, what could I ask that would not sound dumb. And so I, and what I did ask sounded dumb by the time I did ask it, but I asked some complex question that was a genuine question that I had of how I was supposed to navigate certain issue in the body of Christ today that just seemed unprecedented. Like it's so complex for me to know as a leader how to address it. And he looked at me and he said something. Remember how I was waiting, I wanted something from him that I would never forget? Well, that's what I got. Except for the reason I I never will forget it is because it was far too simple. I gave him a complex question that I expected him to sort of look at me and go, that is a really wise question, young man. Thank you for asking it. You know, there's very few young men in our generation who would be sensitive enough to the spirit to ask such a question as that. No, instead, that's not what I got. Instead, he looks back at me, and this is what he answers. Jesus. Uh, okay. That's, that's his answer. That was his answer. His answer was Jesus. And you know, again, in, here I am repeating it years later, right? One of the most brilliant answers you could ever give because it is true. The answer is not as complex as you may think, Eric. The answer is Jesus. And of course, as, as the young smart guy, you know, who wants to speak for an hour about it, that, that's Jesus? That, that's the answer? That's the answer. You see, the, the solution to this stalemate is Jesus. The solution to breaking through the enemy line, it, it's actually Jesus. You could try all your hardest, you know, not touching, not handling, not tasting. You could do your best in the natural man. You could try your best with your righteousness. That will never work. It's his work. It always has been his work. It always will be his work. It's his life. It always has been his life. It always will be his life. There is only one way to win this thing. And it's the answer that all of us already know, which is why it's sort of frustrating when you get that as your answer. It's like, well, I know Jesus. Yeah, I, uh, but am I using him as my answer? Am I using him as my chief means of breakthrough? Or do I just hold him over here and go, I esteem him, but meanwhile, I'm going to try everything else to break through this enemy line. We have enemy lines in our life. We have different hindrances that the enemy is going to set up because that's what the enemy does. He is an adversary. He is an opponent to the work of grace inside of us. But we have something greater that will trounce it every time. And it is not our natural man's strength. It is his ability. The dreadful stalemate. This is how Barbara Tuckman says it. After it, with the advent of winter, came the slow, deadly sinking into the stalemate of trench warfare running from Switzerland to the Channel like a gangrenous wound across French and Belgian territory. The trenches determined the war of position and attrition, the brutal, mud-filled, murderous insanity known as the Western Front that was to last for four more years. It is inscrutable. It is difficult to swallow. But just as these generals in military history have fallen prey to the classic bait of the devil of stalemate, so can we. It sounds so wise, it has an appearance of wisdom, and yet it does nothing to actually solve the problem. All it does 
is break down your life. When you try and heed the law as your means of salvation, you try and be righteous in your own power, it sounds wise. It does. It makes total sense to you even when you're doing it, just like Martha complaining about Mary. It's like, hey, Jesus, make her come in and help me with the kitchen. I mean, th these people over here that are super spiritualizing everything, making it about Jesus, don't they realize that we have a, a war here in Flanders and we need to fight it? And yet Mary is on to something. She knows that the solution is found in a person. It's found in Jesus. And when we go to Jesus, we truly find life. And we find the breakthrough that we have been after. Father, we as the body of Christ want to freshly acknowledge that you are the solution, the lone solution. And for those of us that have fought many a battle in the fields of Flanders, many a battle attempting to break through a stalemate by being righteous in our own strength, Lord, I pray that you would freshly show us the cross and that we would cherish it afresh today, that we would worship you because you are able. You have done it. You have conquered our great opponent. Lord Jesus, we say thank you for your work on that cross. Thank you for your resurrection life. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that each one of us that is hearing this would freshly reach out and take hold of your work instead of leaning on our own Lord, break the stalemate in our life. Set us free to live and to thrive in your kingdom. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellersley.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.